Career Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Cune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at cunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 20th of September 2023 from the business section. Architect reveals five-year labour of love at Paisley Town Hall. This article is by Katrina Stewart. The architect in charge of the £22 million redesign of Paisley Town Hall has revealed the trials and challenges behind the five-year regeneration scheme. An A-listed Victorian building, the architectural gem sits in the heart of the town and its revamp forms a vital part of wider plans to reinvigorate Paisley's centre. The Herald gave details of the first look inside the revamped building earlier this year when one Wren, the body that runs the building, revealed images of the work carried out inside the historic cultural hub. Now, as the final touches are carried out before the first trial event to be held in the refreshed building, project architect Stephen Coulson gave a tour of the most striking features. Mr Coulson of Holmes Miller Architects has worked on the project since its inception in 2018. He said, I am very passionate about the building and my dream for it is that it is busy and properly used. But I am a little bit bruised. There have been battles and problems along the way. It has not been straightforward. The building, we hoped, would have been ready a little bit earlier, but the building fights against you sometimes. During the refurbishment of the building, which dates from 1882, Lead paint, asbestos and structural problems were uncovered. A void space in the building has been transformed into a new dance studio, but towards the end of the refurb it was noticed that the ceiling was rotten and ready to fall down, meaning additional repair work. Mr Coulson added, But that being said, the skeleton of the building, the big sandstone box, is really robust and could take a bit of punishment and modification. So the bones of the building were great and we've been building it back to its glory. With a grade A listed building, we have an obligation to refurbish the building in a sympathetic manner. But it is a very beloved building. The community is in love with this building. It has been at the heart of their community for a very long time. So there's a responsibility to get the interventions right and make sure the building works harder for the community. Mr Coulson described the transformation of the building as night and day. 
to what it previously was, having been diminished over recent years to an underused single hall. Now capacity for the main auditorium has been increased from 800 to 1,200, and new spaces have been added in, such as the dance studio and a cafe bar in what was formerly a storage space. Architectural features of the town hall have been preserved and restored, with a motif of ceiling roses appearing in unlikely places, such as carved onto the lifts. Mr. Coulson said, When you deal with a heritage building, you have to first try to understand the language of what you are dealing with, and when you begin to interrogate and analyse the language of the building. In the main hall ceiling, there are wonderful rosettes set in a very neoclassical pattern, and we have to deal with these sensitively, so we've put soundproof panels around them, but we've never concealed them and we've used these patterns elsewhere in the building, referencing part of the heritage fabric. In one of the spaces, and there are now six in total, including a digital screening room, a floor mosaic was discovered, but it was too damaged to be safely removed. Instead, it has been carefully preserved and new flooring placed over the top. A representative from One Wren, on the tour, jokes that Renfrewshire Council is going to have a serious bill for Brasso, given the amount of brass detailing in the building. Mr Coulson added, I spent three years fighting the contractors to say you can't have stainless steel in this building because I felt like if I caved in on one bit, then everything would turn into stainless steel and it wouldn't meet the heritage requirements. There was quite an intelligent part of the client brief. Certain people on the council were saying, oh, we can't put a material that nice into a room because people will break it. But the voice from the council coming through was that if you make it that nice, then people won't want to break it, and they will take ownership of it, and they will enjoy the space. Architects carried out a 3D analysis of every seat in the auditorium to re-rake the position of the seating, and ensure a full view of the stage. The building has also been made more accessible, with an increase from 20% of the building being accessible to 80%. Toilet provision has doubled in capacity with separate women's, men's and unisex bathrooms, as well as accessible toilets. To achieve this, architects excavated down to the basement to create extra space. Another challenge was finding specialists to carry out heritage work, such as lime plaster used throughout the building. There are only two heritage plaster companies capable of taking on a building of Paisley Town Hall size. The hall, according to one Wren, is now pretty much pitch perfect, which has impressed promoters who have been invited to inspect the facilities. But who might be lured to play at Paisley Town Hall when Glasgow's famous gig venues are so nearby? One Wren and Renfrewshire Council are coy about the names they want to attract, but we're not likely to get Beyoncé here. A spokesman said, The Hydro has got its own audiences, but there's nothing to say we won't attract big-name acts here for something they see as being more intimate.
This is very much Paisley's big stage, and it will find new audiences as well as the people with memories. People have really ingrained memories of this place. We haven't changed an old friend too much, but we have brought it up to 21st century spec. But it still looks classic, it still looks grand. It still looks like a rich and vibrant place you can come and enjoy, whatever the show is. The names I can't give you, but wouldn't it be nice if we had the likes of Paolo Nutini? Of course it would be. Would it be nice to have big names stepping off a plane and coming straight here? Definitely, and we expect that to happen. Paisley Town Hall will open for its first test event on September the 29th, ahead of the mod coming to the venue from October the 13th. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday the 20th of September 2023 from the business section. Paisley will be to Glasgow what Brooklyn is to Manhattan. This article is by Katrina Stewart. From prime ministers to pop stars, Paisley has produced its fair share of famous names. While the town is perhaps more proud of Paolo Nutini than Liz Truss, it has a roll call of celebrities to rival any of Scotland's cities. But the A-list stardust hasn't dazzled the fortunes of Paisley, which suffers a reputation sitting just adjacent of being Glasgow's poor relation. Renfrewshire Council and One Wren, the council's culture arm, want to change that with what has been described as a once-in-a-generation level of investment in the area's cultural hubs. It is hoped that by reinvigorating main architectural gems of the town, that the, the town more widely will be reinvigorated too. In fact, ambitious plans aspire to make Paisley more than just an adjunct to its neighbouring city, but a must-see, cooler destination. Renfrewshire Council plans to develop a cultural thread from the under-redevelopment Paisley Museum to the Art Centre, over to the new library and on to the town hall. Each of these is within a ten-minute walk. As Paisley Town Hall prepares to be brought back to public use, the opening of a new learning and cultural hub on the town's high street is in the pipeworks, as is the refurbishment of Paisley Arts Centre. An insider at One Wren told the Herald, this is a once-in-a-generation investment from the city and its partners. The town hall is the start of this journey. We've got the library coming later in November, we've got the art centre next year, and then the crowning glory of the museum. This has the opportunity to unlock huge parts of potential within Paisley, reinvigorating parts of the town centre and making the city a destination. Why shouldn't Paisley be to Glasgow what Brooklyn is to Manhattan? It's no new tactic to use culture to bring about wider economic change, and the council plans to encourage investment in local business. Paisley already has a thriving education sector, being home to the University of the West of Scotland. But the challenges are no easy feat. Paisley has some of the highest deprivation rates in the country, in line with its post-industrial history. In its heyday, the town was referred to as the Manchester of Scotland,
but when the plant shut, the Peugeot-Talbot car plant preserves firm Robertson's, chemical specialist Seba Geige and the textile mills, the effect was devastating. As Glasgow has thrived under its cultural rebirth, so too, it is hoped, will Paisley. The reopening of Paisley Town Hall is the first step in this and ambitions are high for the venue. Stephen Coulson, architect with Holmes Miller Architects and the project architect since 2018, said, What I think this building is offering is the fact that it was quite run down. It had devolved to something where they were only just using the main hall a few times a year for pantomime and a kid's play. We've opened up all the spaces that were not being used. We've put such high-quality sound and lighting that people will want to rent them. They will beat the competition. If you want to get married, for example, you could use the register office at Renfrewshire Council, or you could look in in the event space here and think, ooh, why am I not going to use that? These are spaces that I genuinely think people are going to want to use and this building is going to, hopefully, go from underused to bursting at the seams. That's the difference it will make to the community. And in the longer term, one Wren certainly hopes, it will be the catalyst for major social and economic change. This is from the Herald Scotland of Wednesday, the 20th of September. 2023 from the business section. UK inflation unexpectedly slows to the lowest rate in 18 months. This article is by Jodie Harrison. UK inflation unexpectedly fell in August as a drop in hotel and airfare costs and a slowdown in food price rises helped offset a jump in fuel costs according to official figures. The Office for National Statistics, the ONS, said consumer prices index inflation was 6.7% in August, down from 6.8% in July. It marks the lowest rate since February last year. Analysts had predicted inflation to accelerate last month to a reading of 7.1%, due to a sharp rise in motor fuel amid a rebound in oil prices. Grant Fitzner, the ONS chief economist, said, The rate of inflation eased slightly this month, driven by falls in the often erratic cost of overnight accommodation and airfares, as well as food prices rising by less than the same time last year. This was partially offset by an increase in the price of petrol and diesel compared with a steep decline at this time last year, following record prices seen in July 2022. Core inflation has slowed this month by more than the headline rate, driven by lower services prices. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 21st of September 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Bard in the Botanics Review, Lear's Fool, Kibble Palace, Four Stars, by Neil Cooper, Theatre Critic. Theatre, Lear's Fool, Kibble Palace, Botanic Gardens, Glasgow, Neil Cooper, Four Stars. If a king can't follow rules, suggests Lear's Fool, 
turned games master to her old boss and his daughter at one point in David Henry Wilson's play, it will be chaos. Wise words indeed, as Wilson fills in the gaps of Shakespeare's historical tragedy. As we see what became of Lear's much-loved jester following their disappearing act midway through Shakespeare's play. That this came just as the king descended into madness makes one even more curious. Bundled into a cell by clearly smitten guard John, Nicole Cooper's fool is always on, keeping up the act whatever. The fool's reflex tomfoolery is used to disguise a huge intellect, away with a metaphor and much more besides. This goes unappreciated by some audiences, including John. As with every soothsaying comic, however, there is a lot of serious stuff going on behind the mask. Wilson's one-act curio was first seen in 1994 and has been picked up for its Scottish premiere by the ever-exploratory Bard and the Botanics Company. Jennifer Dick's production brings the play to life with a depth that sees Cooper have huge amounts of fun as the fool. Even as Stam Stopford's John is charmed and Johnny Panshaw's captain has the wool pulled over his eyes, a sadness comes through beyond the surface smiles. In mourning for the man known as Nuncle, a backstory is laid bare suggesting a whole new side to the duo's relationship. When Lear and Cordelia eventually turn up, the king's madness, it seems, has been abated. The fool's exchanges with Finlay MacLean's Lear and Stephanie McGregor's Cordelia are laced with familiar lines, as if Lear and the fool were a double act holding on to well-worn catchphrases for comfort. As assorted fates are sealed, the punchline, when it comes, is no laughing matter. By Neil Cooper. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 21st of September 2023, from the news section. Rishi Sunak, under fire, after watering down climate strategy. This article is written by David Boll. Rishi Sunak has been accused of an unforgivable U-turn on efforts to tackle the climate crisis, after rowing back on the UK government's key climate pledges. The Prime Minister stressed the UK's 2050 legal net zero target will remain intact but he confirmed a raft of environmental policies for England and the UK will be watered down or abandoned. The rethink means the proposed 2030 ban on new petrol and diesel cars have been pushed back to 2035. Despite complaining about short-term thinking on net zero, the Prime Minister's change of tune could mean more drastic action will be needed in future years, to ensure the UK meets its 2050 legal aim. Mr Sunak's decision to push forward the ban on new petrol and diesel cars has resulted in a backlash from Ford over its current investment towards the 2030 target. Ford UK Chairwoman Lisa Brankin said, Our business needs three things from the UK Government – ambition, commitment and consistency – A relaxation of 2030 would undermine all three. He has weakened the plan to phase out gas boilers from 2035 so that homeowners in England will not have to switch to heat pumps unless they sell on their property. Patrick Harvey is set to unveil the Scottish Government's ambitious strategy to decarbonise heating soon and is shaking up energy efficiency ratings that will downgrade gas boilers in the ratings. Mr Sunak has also announced he is scrapping policies to force landlords in England to upgrade the energy efficiency of their properties. 
The Prime Minister also said he was scrapping recycling schemes, raising questions over the Scottish Government's deposit return scheme, which is now set to be delivered in tandem with the UK Government. First Minister Humza Yousaf said the U-turn was unforgivable, adding that it was time for climate action and ambition. Mr Yousaf added, The UK Government is on the wrong side of history. I'd urge them to rethink. The Prime Minister claimed that the UK leads the world on net zero, despite statutory advisers, the Climate Change Committee warning earlier this year that Britain had lost its clear global leadership position on climate action. But the strategy will be viewed as wholly political ahead of next year's general election, where he is expected to lose the keys to Downing Street, with climate policies regarded as some within the Tory party as a vote loser. Speaking at Downing Street, the Prime Minister said he is acting because if the UK continues with its current strategy, we risk losing the consent of the British people and might never achieve our goal. Mr Sunak said he did not want to impose such significant costs on working people to achieve net zero without a properly informed national debate. He added that we need sensible green leadership and a more pragmatic, proportionate and realistic approach to tackling the climate crisis. Mr Sunak insisted the UK was already ahead of allies in reducing emissions and could not impose unacceptable costs on British families. The risk here to those of us who care about reaching net zero, as I do, is simple. If we continue down this path, we risk losing the consent of the British people, he said. And the resulting backlash would not just be against specific policies, but against the wider mission itself, meaning we might never achieve our goal. That's why we have to do things differently. Scotland's Net Zero Secretary, Mary McAllen, said the changes by the Prime Minister are devastating for our environment, constitute complete economic illiteracy and undoubtedly have serious implications for Scotland's climate ambitions. The SNP Minister said it was an unforgivable betrayal of current and future generations. Piers Foster chairman of the Climate Change Committee, warned the announcement was likely to take the UK further away from being able to meet its legal commitments. He added, More action is needed and we await the government's new plan for meeting their targets and look forward to receiving their response to our progress report expected at the end of October. Jamie Livingstone, head of Oxfam Scotland, said, It beggars belief that the Prime Minister seems intent on rowing back on key climate commitments, just at the point when we should be speeding up, not slowing down climate action. In stark climate contrast, the First Minister has this week rightly talked about the need for greater urgency and action. However, history will judge our leaders by what they do, not what they say, and neither the Scottish or UK Government is investing at the scale and speed needed to slash emissions. In a letter to the Prime Minister, SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn has warned that there is a global race to meet net zero future, adding, You've just thrown in the towel. He added, 
your clear intention to renege on the promises made to citizens and businesses on achieving green growth and green jobs puts at risk both our climate obligations and our economic future. Mr Flynn labelled the U-turn as a disgraceful decision that will hit hardest in Scotland. That article was written by David Ball. This is from the Herald on Thursday the 21st of September 2023 from the news section. Teenager died after fatal consumption of water in hospital. This article is written by Helen McArdle. A teenager who died after ingesting lethal quantities of water while being detained in hospital for psychosis was let down by a number of failings in his care, according to a watchdog. A review of the tragedy of the Mental Welfare Commission, MWC for Scotland, found that the 18-year-old patient, known only as Mr D, was able to engage in risky and ultimately fatal psychosis-driven behaviour because the ward staff treating him during his final admission had not been provided with the relevant case files. Mr D, who died in December 2018, had been transferred to an adult mental health service, AMHS, unit in a neighbouring health ward as there were no inpatient beds available in his local area. He spent 70 hours in the unit, which is not named in the report, before staff noticed that his bedroom floor was wet and he had vomited clear mucus-like fluid on the evening of December the 7th, 2018. It added, He stated that he had drank water before suffering a seizure and rapidly deteriorating. Paramedics swiftly transferred Mr D to the acute hospital intensive care unit, but he did not recover and died on December the 10th, 2018. The review details how Mr D had first developed behavioural difficulties as a young teenager as a result of smoking cannabis. Age 16, following the onset of psychotic symptoms, he was admitted to an acute hospital intensive care unit suffering from a seizure brought on by water intoxication. Ingesting a very large amount of water over a short period can be dangerous because it disrupts the body's electrolyte balance, leading to confusion, disorientation, nausea and vomiting. The kidneys are only able to remove about 800 millilitres and 1 litre of water from the body per hour. In rare cases, water intoxication can cause swelling in the brain and become fatal. Following this first incident, the 16-year-old Mr D was transferred to a regional child and adolescent mental health service, CAMHS, inpatient unit for psychiatric treatment. He was detained again in 2017 for psychotic symptoms, which were described as resembling bipolar disorder with signs of schizophrenia. The report said that Mr D had been treated with three different antipsychotic medications, but there were periods of up to eight months when he was known to refuse treatment. It added, in the year before Mr D's death, his parents raised concerns about the extent of his ongoing psychotic symptoms and the behaviours he displayed in association with his illness. They thought their son's treatment with medication was not optimised and were concerned about it being delivered voluntarily when he was so clearly affected by psychotic illness. 
This included fears that he would die by his own hand as a result of risky behaviour. When he was admitted to an out-of-area hospital again as an adult in December 2018, case notes from his previous contact with CAMHS were unavailable. While relevant clinical information was passed to his new treatment team in the form of letters, telephone calls and past attention papers, and face-to-face meetings and phone calls were held between Mr D's parents and his receiving general adult consultant psychiatrist, not all of this valuable clinical information made it into Mr D's care plan. The MWC has issued 10 recommendations following its review of the case. Suzanne McGuinness, its Executive Director of Social Work, said, This was a tragic death of a young man while he was being cared for in hospital. Our report details the actions and decisions taken by teams at the two health boards involved in the lead-up to his death. We found that a more assertive approach to the treatment of Mr D's psychotic illness in the two years before his death was warranted. The risks associated with psychotic illness were not coherently managed. We also found that there were problems with Mr D's transition from child and adolescent mental health services to adult mental health services. Existing guidance was not adhered to. We found that although the service had no other viable option, the transfer of a very unwell young man with a complex clinical history to another health board area during the night was a high-risk action. Mr D's family told us they felt they had not been listened to. They felt their concerns were not given due credence. We ask mental health services across Scotland to read this report, consider our findings carefully and take action where they believe they can make improvements. That article was written by Helen McArdle. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 21st of September, from the sports section. It's difficult. Onana takes responsibility for Man United loss. Article by Martin McMillan. Devastating goalkeeper Andre Onana said he let the team down with his costly mistake at the start of Manchester United's Champions League loss to Bayern Munich. Eric Ten Hag's side suffered a fourth loss in five matches as a bright start in Bavaria went up in smoke with the summer signing somehow letting a Leroy Sané shot squirm home. Bayern quickly added a second through Serge Gnabry and never relinquished control of the Group 8 opener. With Harry Kane scoring a penalty straight after Rasmus Hoyland had pulled one back after a half time. Casimiro scored either side of Matty Tell's stoppage time strike in a dramatic conclusion to a 4 3 defeat that Glamonana took responsibility for. It's difficult, the Cameroon International said. It's difficult to lose this way because I think in the beginning we started very good and after my mistake we lost control of the game. It's a difficult situation for us, for me especially, because I'm the one who let the team down. But the team were good, very good, but because of me we didn't win the game. I am happy for the work of the team and we just have to move on. This is the life of the goalkeeper and if we didn't win today it's because of me. Onana requested to face the media after the game and was clearly cut up about his error in the first half, which he said was the key point in the loss. 
I have to learn from it and be strong. Move on, the former Inter Milan player told TNT Sports. It's not an easy situation, but I'm very happy for the comeback of the team. We were fighting until the end, but I have to recognise because of me we didn't win. I have a lot to prove because, to be honest, my start in Manchester is not so good, not how I want. Play how I play today is one of my worst games, and it's difficult because we have a big ambition, we are a very big club, and we want to win everything. It was a big opportunity for us to bounce back after the situation we are facing. It's tough, a tough time. We have to be together, we have to continue what we are doing, learn from our mistakes because it's the only thing to do. Ten Hag did not sugarcoat things when asked about Onana's error in the press conference, but made clear it is about the team rather than an individual. I think he shows that he takes responsibility and shows personality and the personality he needs to get in high levels, United boss said. But that's not only about him, it's about the team's performance, so we have to support him on the pitch, not only in life, we have to help him. But it doesn't only count for Andre, it counts for all the players on the pitch. They have to understand they're in the same boat, and they have to be on the same page to get results. Ten Hag said people should not make it bigger than it is, and is sure Onana will bounce back from the clangor as attention turns to Saturday's Premier League trip to Burnley. When you score three goals in Munich, you have to take at least a point, which we didn't, the Dutchman said. We have to take a look at ourselves in the mirror. As for Bayern, they were far from their flea-throwing best, but Thomas Tuchel, banned from the touchline, was happy with the result. It is a deserved win, the ex-Chelsea boss said. Every win in the Champions League is a big point. Every win against Manchester United is a big point. We didn't have the rhythm that we wanted and, in the face after we made it 3-1, we could have killed the game off. But we reacted well to every setback. And that article was by Martin McMillan. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 21st of September, from the Voices section, Opinion Independence, Starmer snubs closer EU links and boosts SNP by Neil Mackay, writer at large. Did you hear that? It was the sound of Hamza Yusuf heaving a sigh of relief coupled with a wail of despair from Anna Sarwar. Chances are, it's a noise we'll become ever more familiar with thanks to Sir Keir Starmer. The Labour leader has turned his back on an opportunity not just to realign British politics and fix the mess of Brexit, but also kill independence stone dead. Starman is to reject Franco-German plans that would have allowed Britain closer ties to a new multi-speed Europe through associate membership of the EU. Details emerged following Starmer's Paris meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron. The plan was created in part, though not specifically, to lay the foundations for closer relations between Britain and Europe in the event of a Labour government. But, Labour sources close to Starmer describe the idea as a non-starter. Details are contained in what's called the Report of the Franco-German Working Group on EU Institutional Reform. The document is entitled Sailing on the High Seas, Reforming and Enlarging the EU for the 21st Century. The plan... Released on Monday is the work of 12 experts commissioned by the French and German governments. 
It comes with the imprimatur of Paris and Berlin. Both launched the working group with a joint statement from their respective foreign ministers. The big idea is for concentric circles of EU involvement. Countries like France and Germany would be in the inner circle and sign up to radical integration involving the removal of national votes on defence, security and foreign policy. Then there's a second tier of EU member states who don't want cooperation in such an intense level. Next comes associate outer tier for countries like Norway, Switzerland and even the UK. Britain's associate status would mean it would not be bound to ever closer union or further integration. The core area of participation would be the single market. Being part of the single market means freedom of movement. Associate members would pay into the EU budget but on a lower level. This would come with lower benefits such as no access to agricultural funds. It's a better deal than we have now but still not great. Britain would regain access to the single market, but we'd have lost the voice we once had with full membership. Nevertheless, it would be a step towards addressing the economic and political wounds caused by Brexit. In a Scottish context, it would have ripped the SNP's independence policy to shreds. So much of the SNP's support is predicated on progressive, pro-European voters who want back in the EU. Brexit boosted the Yes movement. The SNP was able to say, rightly, that the Leave vote betrayed promises made during the 2014 referendum. Voters were told by Better Together during the referendum that a no vote was the best way to protect Scotland's place in Europe. Brexit was a golden goose of a gift to the SNP. Cook that goose and the fortunes of the SNP and the Yes movement changed dramatically. But Hamza Yousaf need not fret. Starmer and the English red wall seats have the same relationship as a drunk punter and a stage hypnotist. Those red wall voters leave Starmer mesmerised to the extent of forsaking all else. If Starmer had begun a conversation about the merits of the Franco-German scheme, he would have arrested the change in fortunes for the SNP. Currently, despite having the living hell kicked out of it for months, the SNP is on course to, to form yet another government at Holyrood in 2026, along with the Greens on a combined majority of 70 seats. Starmer's Milkote toast offering just isn't cutting through Scotland enough. In England, many voters would crawl over broken glass to get the Conservatives out. In Scotland, there's an alternative to Labour if you're on the progressive Liberal left. Now, clearly, like that goggle-eyed drunk after their brush with the hypnotist, Starmer is under the sway of those who believe that to even flirt with the notion of closer ties to Europe spells electoral disaster. However, that idea appears wrong. Polls tell a different story. Only 18% of those who voted Leave in 2016 believed Brexit was a success. One in six Leavers would now also vote Remain. Posters YouGov say that with public opinion having turned against Brexit, most Britons would now vote to remain where the EU referendum be held again. YouGov says headline voting intentions are 64% to 36%. Half of voters, including one in five leavers, want another referendum within the next decade. There is a belief currently doing the rounds that when 
Perhaps F is a better conjunction. Starman gets his hands in power. He'll somehow be more radical than his current toady-like manifestation. This notion is understandable in England, where left or centre votes have no hope, but Starmer to relieve them of the blight of the Tory party. However, it's misplaced. Starmer has made himself entirely clear. When people tell you who they are, listen. We've come to learn that lesson the hard way over the last decade. On Europe, it would be impossible for Starmer to say no to closer links while in opposition and then change tack once in power. Such a policy wouldn't be in Labour's manifesto, and so would be rightly seized on by a Conservative party in opposition, and a pliable, angry right-wing English place, as a betrayal of voters. Imagine for a moment, though, the possible consequences in Scotland if Starmer had went for the Franco-German plan. Anna Sarwar would have been able to say that Labour was now in the means to bring Scotland back closer to Europe, he could have presented independence as meaningless to pro-Europeans. He might even have chanced the argument that independence was now a potential route to greater isolation for Scotland outside Europe by claiming once independence, independent would have to wait in line for re-entry while the rest of the UK under Labour moved even closer. But we'll never know now, will we? Because hypnotised Starmer is captivated by those seductive red wall seats and seems not to give a damn about Scotland. And that article was by writer-at-large, Neil Mackay. Evening Times, July 25. Martha Wardrop says, Time to invest in resilience against extreme weather. We are seeing soaring temperatures and climate chaos across the world. This month, our planet has had its hottest day on record. This temperature rise follows reports that the UK experienced the hottest June on record. Climate scientists are warning that we need to act now. We have to ensure that this is a turning point in efforts to bring about national and international climate action. Planning for even more oil and gas exploration would be a climate disaster. It would make an already unsustainable situation even worse and would pave the way for even greater climate breakdown. At nearly 500 million barrels, Rosebank is the biggest undeveloped oil and gas field in the North Sea. Last year, the UK government announced that it could approve more than 100 new oil and gas exploration licences as part of its latest licensing round. There is a proposed expansion of oil and gas drilling and opening up even more of our North Sea to the highest bidder. Its approach is contributing to a cataclysmic failure in tackling the climate crisis and is putting future generations at risk. To ensure we have a livable future, we must end oil and gas exploration and drastically cut our dependence on planet-wrecking fossil fuels. We need to support a generation-defining push for renewables and a fair and just transition that embraces and supports the communities and workers who have relied on the oil and gas industry. A just transition is vital to communities around the world.
those communities, workers and their skills should be right at the heart of building a fairer, greener future. We have the knowledge and technology to build an economy that works for people and planet. We must embrace the opportunity while we still have the time. The cost of inaction is unthinkable. The UK government is utterly failing to grasp the real and immediate dangers posed by the climate emergency. There is no time to waste. With the world burning around us, it is even more urgent that the UK government delivers on its climate pledge and halts the tax breaks to fossil fuel companies. We need to have tax measures and incentives which influence the behaviours of companies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The UK government must fulfil its commitment to tackle the impacts of climate change and invest to ensure that we have an economy that is resilient to extreme weather events. Scottish Green councillors are continuing to support efforts to build on existing partnerships, programmes and initiatives across Glasgow in order to tackle climate change. We can and must do more on heating buildings, making them efficient, as well as making improvements to sustainable travel. It is vital that there are resources to deliver an ambitious net zero transition plan, creating well-paid green jobs, investing in local supply chains and laying the foundation for a just and prosperous future in which no one is left behind. Our focus has to be on actions that deliver investment, that recognises the urgency of the climate emergency, says Martha Wardrop. The Herald on the 27th of July and the Voices section. Strange Times of a Summer Newsroom by Kathleen Salmond. Summer is a strange time in a newsroom. Colleagues pass like ships in the night, take well in time off. Desks are left empty, there can be an eerie quietness, yet only for it to be shattered when staff return, often with suntans, occasionally biscuits, and always with tales from far-flung or not-so-distant locations. The usual order of things is suspended for a couple of months, a pattern mirrored across country in many of our institutions, including Holyrood and Westminster, where breaks are in place. And yet the demands of our digital and print products remains the same. We have readers expecting news, comment and analysis. And our priority is, of course, to deliver that. This week, my top pick comes from my politics team, which, with both parliaments in recess, does not have the usual diary commitments to cover. Highlights for me have been the team's in-depth and analytical pieces, many offered through the evening political unspun newsletter, which thousands of readers have delivered to their inboxes every day. My favourites have included Thursdays by our political editor Tom Gordon, who amid a sea of them this week looked up by-elections and asked whether they were a significant indicator of political watershed. His conclusion? Only very few in history could be hailed genuine watersheds, but they really do count. 
Gordon gave a fascinating look back over political by-election history and explained why. Sounds dry. Absolutely not. It was great. Something we are never short of at the Herald is something to say. No season can get in the way of that. And this week, my next top pick comes from our fantastic opinion section from the very talented Alison Riot, who manages to take make light of frustrating start to a holiday while weaving in the top t- topics of Scottish independence, crazy golf and adult-child relationships. This piece was unsurprisingly a top f- performer on our site, with readers clearly sympathetic to ferry delays and the need for family holidays. My final pick comes from reporter Katrina Stewart, who spoke exclusively with Joyce Landry, the CEO of the charter company responsible for supplying the controversial barge being used to house asylum seekers in Portland, Dorset. Laundry Hibbag claims the Bibby Stockholm vessel is a floating prison, telling Stuart the facility, which will house 500 asylum seekers in a bid to alleviate the cost of and pressures on hotel accommodation, is actually quite lovely. It is a topic and a vessel that is attracting media attention from around the world, so I was thrilled for us to secure an exclusive interview. Refugee rights groups have condemned the project, saying conditions on board are inhumane and amount to floating detention. Other readers have expressed a range of views. We will, of course, be following events closely. Closely. Enjoy your week. And that was by Catherine Salmond, the editor. The Herald on the 22nd of September and the Voices section. The sorry plaques they'd slap on Glasgow's statues by Mark Smith. First, it was all about pulling statues down. Then it was about chucking them in the water. Then it was about putting new things on the statues. Now it's about taking the things off again. The row over statues in public spaces has got pretty intense, so let me bring you up to date in case you've missed the latest twist. It concerns the Melville Monument in Edinburgh, a memorial to the politician Henry Dundas, which you'll remember was one of the statuses that became controversial after Black Lives Matter. The council decided it would erect a plaque at the site supposedly putting Dundas in context, the specific accusation being that he was instrumental in delaying the abolition of slavery and, in the words of the plaque, as a result, more than half a million enslaved Africans crossed the Atlantic. The most recent twist in the story is that the plaque has now disappeared. The descendant of Dundas, Viscount Melville, claiming responsibility for taking it down and insisting it was a all above board. A councillor for the Scottish Greens, however, with all the nuance and restraint for which the party is known, has urged the police to investigate the removal as a potential crime. The problem, of course, is that a deeply unsubtle tactic, a plaque written by committee, has been chosen to tackle a deeply complicated subject, which is the role individuals play in historical events. The plaque appears to link Dundas directly with the fate of half a million enslaved Africans, but as several historians have pointed out, pinning the enslavement on hundreds of thousands of people on one person alone is bad history. You can see the problem even better by imagining the kind of plaques that might be attached to some of the most well-known statues in Glasgow. The statue of David Livingstone, for example, up by the cathedral. Appoint a committee to write a plaque for that one and they might come up with something like 
David Livingstone once worked at Blantyre Mill, which used cotton from the West Indies slave trade and was a supporter of the British Empire. But of course, the same problems that apply to a plaque on Dundas's statue also apply to Livingstone's. I spoke to the Livingstone biographer, Stephen Tompkins, about this, and he pointed out that a boy working for a mill cannot be held responsible for the global economics linking cotton to slavery. He also made the point that Livingstone's support for the empire was motivated by abolitionist beliefs. He thought the empire could put a stop to the slavers' activities. Take another example, the statue of Walter Scott in George Square, and imagine the problems you might encounter if you tried to attach a plaque to that one. Perhaps some Scots would like the plaque to point out that the Scot was a Unionist and a Tory, but maybe they haven't read Scott's letters in which he talks about England trying to take on the management of affairs, which are entirely and exclusively proper to Scotland. It's nuanced, you see, and plaques aren't nuanced. Obviously, it gets even more complicated when you think about statues such as that of William of Orange. Can you imagine trying to get a committee of Glaswegians to agree on the wording of a plaque for that one? Some hate the statue. Some have even attacked it. Others revere it and interpret a tax on it as a personal tax on their community. It's dangerously complicated and could never be reduced to a few sentences of context. The conclusion from all of this, surely, is that rather than try to come up with plaques apologising for whoever it has been memorised in copper and marble, sorry plaques essentially, it's better to leave them as they are and allow people to do their own research. They have phones, there are bookshops. Take a picture of the statue and go off and work it out for yourself how you feel about the person. You may agree that Dundas, for example, is problematic. You may think he was merely a man operating in his time. The point is that it's complicated. You cannot be reduced to some unsubtle little words on a crude little pack. And that was by Mark Smith. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 25th of September, from the news section, Council admit risk from hazardous waste in Winford demolition study. This article is an exclusive by Martin Williams. A shocking official screening analysis admits there is a danger of the production of hazardous waste and risk of accidents from one of Scotland's biggest proposed demolition projects. The screening opinion by Glasgow City Council over plans to demolish four 26-storey towers at Winford in the Maryhill area reveals that the effects will be catastrophic, say campaigners. There is concern that the issues were not considered big enough by the Council to warrant an Environmental Impact Assessment, EIA, which campaigners believe would have opened the project up to scrutiny of councillors through the normal planning process. Campaigners say that any further moves to go forward with the project will result in court action and they have called on the Scottish Government to intervene. It has led to new calls for Scotland's biggest publicly funded housing association, Wheatley Group, to abandon the £73 million plans which involve flattening the 1960s towers and the 600 homes. Wheatley Homes Glasgow says the concerns over the demolition are scaremongering. Last week, campaigners won a judicial review case after taking concerns to court over a failure to carry out an environmental impact assessment by Glasgow City Council or the Scottish Government. They argued that there was a failure to act lawfully over a decision to not have an environmental impact assessment over the demolition. 
Judge Lord Lake ruled, following a concession from the council, that adequate reasons were not provided in terms of the law surrounding use of impact assessments in its decision-making. He also said that the council were liable for the campaigners' costs in the action, which, which had been estimated at around £10,000. The council is now expected to make a fresh decision on whether an EIA is required through a fresh screening analysis, but campaigners believe it will reach the same conclusion. That is because the council say they do not accept that its original decision over the impact assessment was irrational or not within the powers of the Town and Country Planning Environmental Impact Assessment, Scotland, Regulations 2017. The Council's original screening analysis at the centre of the controversy that has been seen by the Herald found that the development would produce hazardous or toxic waste during construction or operation or decommissioning. This came from asbestos and the construction or demolition waste. There was a risk of accidents during construction or operation of the development which could have an effect on people or the environment. This related to explosions, spillages and fires to the storage, handling and use or production of hazardous or toxic substances. It found that the development would release pollutants or hazardous, toxic or noxious substances. They related to combustion of fossil fuels, construction activities and dust or odours from the handling of materials including construction paraphernalia, sewage and waste. The checkbox analysis found that many people would be affected and that there was a potential for a significant environmental impact. The council said this was to be able to be addressed through its prior approval process. There was an acceptance that there would be a risk to human health either during the construction or operation of the development. That involved air pollution from operational vehicle traffic and noise issues during the demolition period. It said there was a probability of the impact occurring but a low probability of potentially highly, highly significant effect. It said that the effects will be permanent and continuous and that it would not be irreversible. It also said it would potentially be difficult to avoid, reduce, repair or compensate for the effects. But the Council also indicated that it was able to be addressed through its prior approval process. It also said the Council considered that the appropriate mitigation measures can be satisfactorily delivered and maintained regardless of whether or not the development was the subject of an EIA. The win for blocks had been earmarked for demolition by the Wheatley Group, which wanted to replace the entire 600 social housing units, only around 10% of which are still occupied, with 300 new homes. The Housing Association say the project will replace the dated and unpopular blocks with affordable family homes, 255 of which will be, sent, will be for social rent, the Council says that the, under the Town and Country Planning Regulations, Environmental Impact, Scotland, an Environmental Impact Assessment is unlikely to be required for the development of land unless the new development is on a significantly greater scale than the previous land use, or the types of impacts are of a markedly different nature, or there is a high level of contamination. It said, in this particular case, the land is not of a greater scale, as the proposal for the demolition of the residential multi-storey blocks. The impact of the development is likely to affect the local area only, with the impact able to be addressed through the prior approval process. The Council told Wheatley that it considered that it, 
that the project was unlikely to have significant effects on the environment, and so an EIA was not required. But Nick Jury of the Winford Residents Union said the shocking screening opinion confirmed the effects of the project would be catastrophic and that council offices should not prevent the project to come under the scrutiny of councillors through the planning process. He also said the Scottish Government should intervene. The council know this is immoral. It admits that it will be catastrophic. The council has to be taken into account, otherwise they will get away with murder and the Scottish Government should intervene. If they were at all interested in governance, they would have intervened ages ago. He said there would be a further court action if the council carried another screening opinion that blocked the prospect of the EIA again. Scottish ministers can call in any planning application at any time as a safeguard against inappropriate development being permitted, adding a further layer of scrutiny. They usually intervene where a matter of genuine national interest may be at stake. The Residents' Union and the Scottish Tenants' Organisation, STO, believe the flats can be safely retained and retrofitted, but Wheatley said that it is too difficult and expensive. Winford Estate was designed by Ernest Bouteau, Chief Technical Officer for the Scottish Special Housing Association, SSHA, from 1959 to 78. He was thought to be influenced by the designs of Le Corbusier, the father of modern architecture. It was built on a 55-acre site at the Old Mary Hill Barracks, was estimated to cost £4 million. The anti-demolition campaign is backed by leading Scottish architects Alan Dunlop, Kate McIntosh and Malcolm Fraser. They welcomed the court decision which forced the council review and said that there is a clear need for an EIA. Ms McIntosh said, The courageous stand taken by the local residents in this David and Goliath struggle needs and deserves the backing of the Scottish Government which has committed itself to a policy of reducing emissions in conformity with the COP26 declaration. Mr Fraser, Director of Fraser Livingston Architects, added that it was a testament to the dogged professionalism of the Residents' Union in reminding these authorities that there are legal and environmental checks on them bludgeoning in their way to degeneration. I remain concerned at the extraordinary power I see the Wheatley Housing Group wielding, and, Mr Dunlop said, it was a victory in a campaign against the needless demolition of the Winford Flats and the destruction of their homes. A Wheatley Homes Glasgow spokesperson said, Yet again, a small group of activists continue to scaremonger around matters that are completely standard when it comes to demolitions. There are currently demolition programmes taking place across Scotland, for example in New Gorbals, Lanarkshire and Ayrshire, all of which follow the same standard procedures. There is nothing new and nothing different here. As we have said before, anyone who knows anything about planning and regeneration will be aware of these normal practices carried out on every aspect of demolition proposals. Plans are then put in place to mitigate any potential risks identified. We have provided all information requested by the Council. A Scottish Government spokesman said, any decision on redevelopment of Winford Tower Block is a matter for Wheatley Homes and Glasgow City Council, in line with relevant environmental and planning legislation. A council spokesman said, As part of the general planning process, demolition doesn't need planning permission. However, all urban development over a certain scale, including demolition, 
needs to be screened to see if it requires an environmental impact assessment. In this case, a screening process was carried out as usual and determined that an environmental impact assessment was not required in this instance. The decision notice for this screening option has been withdrawn, however, and we have agreed to issue a fresh decision notice for the screening opinion, which will again look at whether or not an EIA is required. And the article is an exclusive by Martin Williams. This is from the Herald Scotland on Monday the 25th of September 2023. From Voices section. The Herald Diary. Why we are poles apart. Report by Lorne Jackson. Poles apart. In the annals of literature, there are many tragic tales involving fragile dreams being dashed upon the hard rock of experience. Anna Karenina and her unfortunate rendezvous with a set of train tracks, Jay Gatsby, brought low Baha'i society. Yet, neither of those classic narratives so poignantly describes the precipitous plummet from hope to desperation as the following. I was supposed to get some new clothes pole cemented in the garden, says reader Ian McDermott, but the firm didn't turn up. Talk about being hung out to dry. Feisty family feud. Listening to her teenage daughters arguing, reader Nicola Monroe overheard the younger sibling snip. You're so patronising! Her sister merely smirked then said, That's a pretty big word for you. Talking balls. Football teams with curious names. Continued. Alan Wallace reveals that his medical school footy team were named the Legionnaires 11 after an outbreak of Legionnaires disease at Glasgow Royal Infirmary at the time. He adds, We played in a league that included a team of pharmacists named Aspen Villa and another very unfit team called Pathetico Madrid. Kitchen Confidential The creative wife of reader Nick Shaw decided to make a trifle instead of buying one of those shop-bought concoctions. After a few hours of struggle and strife in the kitchen, she emerged looking more than a mite exasperated. She had managed to make the trifle, though it was more of a struggle than she foresaw. I've no idea why people use the phrase a mere trifle, she harumphed. There's nothing mere about a trifle, a mere jelly. Now that I could understand. Vlad the Bad An inspirational thought from reader Jack Miller, who gives the following advice. Always believe in yourself, and remember... It's never too late to start over. Vlad the Impaler didn't even start impaling people until his mid-thirties. Night Moves English teacher Laura Ellen used to teach in Glasgow's East End, where one of her pupils told her about a strange experience he had the evening before, when he had been watching a TV programme for the first time. Then suddenly, he had the sensation that he had watched it before. Sounds like déjà vu, said Laura. Aye, but it happened about 10pm, said the youth, so it couldn't be déjà vu. Must have been night vu. Lethargic leapers. Curious reader Lee Shaw has been pondering the bouncy marsupials of Oz, which leads her to ask, 
Would you call a lazy kangaroo a pouch potato? That report was by Lorne Jackson. This is from the Herald Scotland on Monday the 25th of September 2023 from Voices section. Weddings, for richer perhaps, but more likely to be for poorer. Report by Doug Marr. A friend was blessed with four daughters in rapid succession. For years, however, he fretted how he would pay for their weddings. Back in the day, the bride's father was expected to pick up the tab. Thankfully, things have moved on and costs no longer settle on one pair of shoulders. It's become commonplace for both sets of parents to split the bill. Many happy couples now choose to foot the bill for their own big day. Irrespective of who pays the obligatory piper, wedding costs have gone through the roof. It's estimated the average wedding in Scotland costs £1,300 more this year than it did in 2022. It's difficult to define an average wedding, as so many variables are in play. Nevertheless, there is some consensus around £15,000-£20,000, although as far back as 2019, this paper estimated an eye-watering £35,674. At one time, ostentatious weddings were the prerogative of the upper classes and the wealthy. I recently dug out my parents' wedding album, all 12 photos. It looks as if there were around a dozen guests at the registry office and a local restaurant. Honeymoon was a week in sunny Macduff. No, not Magaluf. Macduff. Expectations have increased hugely since then, probably due to our obsession with celebrity and social media. The Beckham's Naff nuptials in 1999, complete with thrones, robes and fireworks, helped set the tone. More modestly, many couples plan their wedding so it looks good on Facebook or Instagram. You don't want your wedding looking second rate compared to those of your pals. I know it's a big event, but it's time to put the brake on the wedding industry. It is an industry, and the bottom line is profit, dependent on getting people to pay for things they can't afford and don't need. The last thing those already struggling with the cost of living and housing crises need is the pressure of an inflated and overpriced wedding. The cost of a one-day bash for family and friends would go a long way towards the deposit for that first home. It's not just the bride and groom who are feeling the squeeze. It's an expensive day for guests, averaging £600 if an overnight stay is involved, with celebrations often extending over several days. Stag and hen parties have become ever more exotic, ranging from expensive spa days to long weekends in distant places. Then there's the wedding present. This once served a useful purpose. When couples were setting up their first home, and needed that kettle or toaster. Nowadays, most couples have been living together and have these things. A recent invitation boldly stated, although presents weren't required, donations towards honeymoon costs would be appreciated. Aye, right. Hotels are the principal cause of escalating costs. They are on a mission to recoup their COVID losses as quickly as possible. At a recent wedding, I was charged nearly £40 for four drinks, one of which was a Coke, same hotel, different wedding, a friend ordered seven teas and was astonished to be charged £35. Luckily, 
she had the composure to refuse both teas and bill. Encouragingly, some couples are using imaginative cost-cutting strategies. Some are having dry weddings that avoid rip-off bar prices and remove the need for expensive overnight stays. Some ask guests, in lieu of presents, to help with the catering, cake and venue decoration. More weddings take place in community halls, bypassing hotels altogether. Micro-weddings are increasing in popularity, although that risks offending those not invited. I'm less sure about the ethics of GoFundMe pages, although there has been a reported 24% increase in the newlyweds category. It's also possible to get an unsecured loan to cover costs. A word of caution. There were 7,000 divorces in Scotland in 2018-19. It probably costs around the same to get out of a marriage as it did to get into it in the first place. Yes, your wedding day can be the biggest day of your life, but many have found it to be the biggest waste of money in their lives. That report was by Doug Marr. The Herald on the 26th of September and the news section. Scottish life expectancy falls again as rich-poor gap persists. By Tom Gordon. Life expectancy in Scotland has fallen for the third time in a row, according to official figures, with males predicted to live almost eight months less than just a few years ago. National Records of Scotland reported average life expectancy at birth was 76.5 years for males and 80.7 years for females in 2020-22. There was a three-week fall for males and a 5.7-week fall for females from 2019 to 2021. Scottish Labour said their figures were damning for the SNP and Tories and demanded SNP Health Secretary Michael Matheson prevent further deadline. It followed a decreases of 17.9 and 11.4 weeks in 2018-20 to and 2019-21 to respectively for men, bringing the total decrease since 2017-19 to to 32.3 weeks for males. Females saw falls in life expectancy of 7.9 weeks in both 2018-20 to and 2019-21, to meaning a total decrease of 21 weeks over the three estimating periods. Most of Scotland's council areas have seen a fall in life expectancy over recent years. The gap between affluent and deprived council areas remains stark, with men in East Dunbartonshire living seven years longer on average than in neighbouring Glasgow. Life expectancy was highest in East Renfrewshire for females, 84 years, and East Dunbartonshire for males, 79.9 years. It was lowest in Glasgow for both males, 72.9, and females, 78.2, in 2020-22. Wife expectancy at birth rose in Scotland between the early 1980s and early 2010s. However, that trend in 2012-2014, to and it began to plateau instead. Since 2018-2020, to life expectancy has fallen each year. Life expectancy for those surviving to 65 has followed a similar trajectory. In 2020-22, to a male who reached 65 can expect to live another 17.3 years on average, while life expectancy for a female is another 19.6 years. This was a decrease of five weeks for females and almost six for males since 2019-21. to 
figures from the Office of National Statistics show the improvement plateau decline pattern across the UK. Life expectancy at birth in 2018 to 2020 was estimated to be 79.3 years for males and 81.3, uh, 83.1 years for females in England, 76.8 years for males and 81 years, 0.0 years for females in Scotland, 78.3 years for males and 82.1 years for females in Wales and 78.7 years for males and 82.4 years for females in Northern Ireland. Scottish Labour Party uh, Labour Deputy Leader Jackie Bally said, these damning figures lay bare the fact that SNP and Tory incompetence is costing lives. Scots are stuck in a twin crisis with the cost of living and chaos in our NHS and it is having a devastating impact on the nation's health. After 16 years of the SNP and 13 years of the Tories and government, both parties are failing Scots in the areas where it matters most. Michael Matheson must act now and take immediate action to ensure that these worrying figures do not become an even more worrying trend. Scottish Labour will deliver the change that Scotland needs to increase life expectancy by investing in primary care, investing in public health measures and ending long wait times. Tory MSP Dr Sandesh Gulhane said these deeply concerning statistics have Hamza Yousaf's, Yousaf's fingerprints all over them. His overwhelming failures during this time as Health Secretary mean life expectancy has fallen for the third year in a row in Scotland. While deaths from the COVID pandemic must be taken into account in relation to life expectancy across the UK, SNP ministers cannot hide behind that excuse given life expectancy had already started falling in Scotland before the virus struck. This comes against the backdrop of the SNP continuing to preside over a record drug deaths rate in Europe, the highest level of alcohol deaths since 2008, and horrendous cancer waiting times. Life expectancy remains lower in Scotland, where the SNP have mismanaged our health service for the last 16 years than in the rest of the UK. It should be a real source of shame for SNP ministers that the tragic reality for Scots, especially those living in Glasgow, is that their lives will be shorter than their UK counterparts. The continued fall in Scotland's life expectancy must be an urgent wake-up call for Hamza Yousaf and Michael Matheson, the SNP's health secretary. They must lay out immediately how they will halt this alarming decline in the nation's health. And that was by Tom Gordon. The Herald on the 26th of September and the new section. Iron Brew, Scottish Soft Drinks, Giant Shrugs of Summer Blues by Scott Wright. Iron Brew owner A.G. Barr overcame the summer washout to report a big rise in profits and promised exciting brand launches in the coming months. The common old-based soft drinks giants hiked pre-tax profits by 12.6% to £27.8 million in the 26 weeks ended July 20, underpinned by strong trading across the group. Revenue climbed by 33.2%, but to £210.4 million, with the company benefiting from the integration of energy drink, brand Boost Drinks, and oat milk maker MOMA Foods onto the bar fold. Bar lifted profits and revenue despite persistent pressure from cost inflation, which is previously flagged to the city, led to the reduction in operating margin 
margin over the period. The company told the city that it had not passed the full impact of cost inflation onto customers in order to remain focused on offering customers great value, affordable brands in an uncertain and challenging economic environment. And it bar reiterated its expectation of delivering a full year profit performance marginality, a marginally above the top end of analyst consensus as announced in August, despite the extended period of poor weather across the summer. Chief Executive Roger White, who will step down from his role and retire from the group within the next year, said, We have made significant financial and strategic progress in the first half and have exciting plans in place for the balance of the year to sustain our growth momentum. We remain confident in delivering a full-year profit performance in line with our recently increased market expectations and are well-positioned to deliver strong shareholder returns for the long term. The company declared an interim dividend of 2.65p per share, a 6% rise in the prior year. And that was by Scott Wright. The Herald on the 26th of September and the Arts and Ends section. My sympathies, like Patrick Harvey's, are with Lawbreakers by Vicky Allen. If you want to appear like any sort of grown-up, the general rule is that you say lawbreaking is wrong and should never, ever, and I repeat, never do it. It's the rule even though we know various heroes in history, Emmeline Pankhurst, Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, Wangari Mathai, Monhadas Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., to name but a few, have broken the law to produce important change. It's still the rule, it is the rule still, when it seems as if the policies of your government may sometimes themselves be causing damage. And it's a rule even if the scientific consensus is telling us that the rising global temperatures we are already experiencing and which are set to worsen are the result, chiefly, of the emissions produced by our burning fossil fuels. Yet your Prime Minister still announces a 100 new oil and gas licenses and a U-turn on key green targets. It also remains the rule that you should say this, though actually most of us break the law in some minor way or other quite regularly. In fact, one piece of research by BT TV from 2017 found that the average Briton commits as many 32 offences a year, though for the most part these are under the radar. As it turns out, in the past week, a couple of people have broken that rule about how to be a grown-up, namely television presenter Chris Packham and Scottish Green co-leader and Minister Patrick Harvey. And of course, there have been plenty around to harangue them for it. Harvey had been asked his view on the wake of Packham's recent documentary, Is It Time to Break the Law? And while he wasn't exactly egging people on, there was certainly no slamming of protesters. Many people, Harvey said, have found themselves effectively feeling disempowered and feeling the only way they can take some power into their hands is to take part in direct action. I will never condemn that. I'm with him there. All right, this is a person who has never, as far as I can remember, broken the law in the name of a political protest for the environment or any other cause and feels no pride over that. I write it as a person who has been on plenty of marches, including the end fossil fuels protest two weeks ago, and wondered if any of this actually makes any difference, and what actually does. All of this is why it was so interesting to watch Chris Packham's documentary uh, last week and see him ask that big question for himself. When is breaking the law the appropriate and right response to a global problem that we seem otherwise 
be failing to solve. And if you don't hurt anyone in the process, is it really so bad? The documentary is well worth watching, particularly for the moment when Extinction Rebellion founder Roger Hallam essentially tells the presenter that the one big thing he could do as a public figure is to get involved in the type of political action that will get him banged up. What is also interesting is the way Peckham created a space in which climate activists are not portrayed as echo-zealots and echo-clowns, and were given room to speak of why the cause matters to them. It was this that I was most relieved to see. As a writer on the environment, I frequently notice the dominant media narrative around the climate activist as extremist or foolish, dangerous or daft. That narrative was there, for instance, in the response from Scottish Conservative Net Zero spokesman, a spokesperson, Douglas Lumsden, to Harvey's comment. People in Scotland are sick and tired of these childish stunts and will be shocked by Patrick Harvey's weak refusal to denounce these acts. What Packham drew attention to in his documentary also chimed with something in academic studying television interviews with environmental activists told me recently. What she had observed, she said, was a pattern in which the protesters were asked questions about the silliness or pointlessness of their protests before they were asked why they were doing it. It's a curious narrative we now have in the face of climate change where those who argue for any action can play at being the grown-ups, and those who protest are portrayed as childish fools, their stunts dismissed, and it's one we must fight. There are, of course, good reasons to condemn law-breaking. Former Climate Change Committee Chair Lord Depp Den does so in Peckham's, in Peckham's documentary, saying... The protesters have to realise that you can do some kinds of protests that help your cause and others that are counterproductive. It's right to point out that, that out. Often, also, we don't know what is working, or whether even if it does work, it will in any case be turned into fuel for the other side for grown-ups to dismiss. One thing I'm sure of, however, is that we won't get there by simply playing the grown-up. We have to actually be it. And I believe Chris Packham is that. I look forward to seeing whatever he does next. And that was by Vicky Allen. The Herald on the 26th of September and the Arts and End section. Edinburgh Hogmanay, Pulp to Headline Concert in the Gardens by Jody Harrison. Britpop legends Pulp have been announced as this year's headliners for Edinburgh's Hogmanay Concert in the Gardens. The veteran rockers will take to the stage in Princess Street Gardens as the capital welcomes in the new year on December 31st. Organisers at Edinburgh's Hogmanay announced the main attraction for their open-air concert on social media platform X, formerly Twitter, this morning, referencing the band's biggest hit. They said, we are thrilled to announce Pulp as your headliner for Concert in the Gardens 2023. We know you will remember the first time you brought in the bells under Edinburgh Castle, like the common people with Pulp. Pulp were last seen in Scotland during the summer when the band, fronted by lead singer Jarvis Cocker, played at the Transmit Festival in Glasgow. Pulp brought the first night to a colourful close in the first Scottish show in more than a decade. Crowds were teased with a lengthy introduction with captions on screen reading, This is a night you will remember for the rest of your life. You're about to see the 529th concert by Pulp. This performance is an encore. An encore happens because the crowd wants more. 
The band surprised fans at the end of 2022 by announcing a run of shows this summer at festivals and outdoor gigs across the UK. Edinburgh's Concert in the Gardens is now in its third decade, with previous headliners including Madness, KT Turnstall and the Pet Shop Boys. It returned in 2022 after a three-year break. Tickets for this year's concert will go on sale at 10am Friday 29 September and are only available through the Edinburgh's Hogney website. And that was by Jodie Harrison. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service. 